Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. She ATL is a summer theater festival promoting work by female playwrights and empowering them to self-produce. The festival began six years ago in New York City and has since expanded to L.A. and Atlanta. Later this hour, we'll hear from She ATL's executive producers and playwright Grace Aki, whose new show, To Free a Mockingbird, will be featured at this year's festival. First, the Atlanta Jazz Festival is the country's largest free jazz festival. Mayor Maynard Jackson founded the event 43 years ago to promote the art form that originated here in the South. This year's festival takes place over the Labor Day holiday. Local and nationally known jazz artists will perform on two stages, Sunday, September 5th, and Monday, September 6th. Michael Reese's photograph, Theories of the Lowest End, was named the official artwork of the 43rd Festival. He joins us now via Zoom with Camille Russell-Love, the executive director of the Mayor's Office of Cultural Affairs, which sponsors the event. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. Thanks for having me. Like so many other events during the pandemic, last year's festival was virtual. Camille, what level of engagement did you have with attendees? And presenting the festival virtually, you know, we were able to continue the tradition of having jazz available to visitors and residents of Atlanta as we had done in the previous 40-something years. And so we got a very good response from people who were listeners because all of the musicians were local musicians. And so they were able to engage their followers and uh, it became kind of a 31 days of jazz in a different kind of way. And so we were pleased with the result, but we're really looking forward to having live music uh, available to our patrons this Labor Day weekend. 
Indeed. And what performances will be among this year's festival highlights? I know it's hard to narrow it down, but if you could give us just a few. Well, you know, we we had one stage on one day that's just going to focus on international artists. And so there's a Esquali Grassa, who's a jazz musician with Latin roots, Yuko Mabuchi, Japanese, Alexi Marti, Cuban, and Miguel Zenon, uh, who has Latin roots as well. So that's going to be on the Oak Hill stage on Sunday, September the 5th. But we have some real legends who are going to perform. Uh, one is Archie Shep, who hasn't performed in the United States in a, a long time, and we're looking forward to him. And then Ron Carter, who is a master bassist, uh, which kind of segues to Michael Reese's artwork, which focuses on a bass player, uh, in fact, a, a local bass player. You know, and then there's some local musicians, Brenda Nicole Moore, who was just in the Respect movie as one of um, Aretha Franklin's backup singers. Wow. Michael Phillips, who's well known for his long notes on the saxophone. And so it's going to be a great festival. Oh, yeah. Brenda Nicole Moore performed on the Next Gen stage a few times. Will this year's festival include that stage? Well, we have um, two stages, not three. COVID has contributed to our having to downsize the festival in that way. She will be on the Oak Hill stage on Monday. But we've also, where we've had to downsize the festival performance-wise, we have upsided it because we're adding a component of education called Jazz 101, where some of these performers will be in conversation or in demonstration of their art form with an audience that needs to register ahead of time. But we also are going to have a special activation for children with local artist Russell Gunn, where kids will, quote, perform at the Atlanta Jazz Festival with Russell on percussion. It's uh, going to be part of the kids zone, uh, and we're really looking uh, forward to that. So we don't have a third stage, but we do have some new activities. I think that educational component is fantastic. Visual art has long been important to this festival, and its posters are reminders of great music shared by Atlantans. This year's official artwork is by Michael Reese. Michael, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. I know this isn't the first time you've created work for the Atlanta Jazz Festival. We'll get to that in a moment. First, would you describe the poster you created for this year? Yeah, so uh, it is a bassist, as Camille mentioned. I think it with which festival I shot that, but I've been shooting jazz images for, for quite a while, for, for decades now. It is a photo-based image that I then manipulated with painting, digital painting, and kind of line drawing overlay. And so it's photographic at its base, but it's more painterly in the finished piece. What I'm trying to do with that is I'm, I'm trying to um, just capture 
kind of just like the soul of the music. And sometimes that's not as visible, you know, when, when we're looking at a, a straight photograph or even the performance. And so really the, the piece is more about the feeling that I'm getting when listening to the music. I really admire your statement that, quoting here, jazz is one of the purest desires of the human spirit and its need to be free. It is improvisational and born out of the tragedies and triumphs of the historical African-American experience. As an artist, my goal is to translate the spirit of the music into a two-dimensional space. Is that why you applied the painterly aspect? Yeah, like the interesting thing, I think, like, so I'm a photographer, I'm a visual artist, and a huge jazz aficionado, and so um, I've been you know, looking at the the great photographs from the 40s and the 50s of Miles and Bird and Dizzy. And these are iconic, you know, like giant figures in jazz. And I think that in, in a straight photograph, just to see, you know, a picture of John Coltrane or just to see a picture of uh, just the document of, of Miles Davis, I think is, you know, for, for many people, just overwhelming and amazing in and of itself that this thing happened. But I think uh, as the giants of jazz have passed away, it's just like, I think the spirit of the music is still there. And so we have musicians who are carrying on that tradition, but are not as well known. What I, you know, what I'm attempting to do in, in, in a lot of my work is to capture the soul of the music and the spirit of the music. And in, in particular, that magical moment uh, in live jazz when a musician is in a flow state, you know, where sometimes the, the audience is not present and the musician is uh, one with their instrument. And so I found no other way to do that than to first photograph it and then to try to extend the photograph in a sense that it could communicate these feelings that I'm having about the music and transcending the moment, really. Really. And would you tell us about the title, Theories of the Lowest End? I'm as a big fan of jazz as I am hip-hop. And so I'm of the age where I I grew up on hip-hop. And so I found jazz, uh, you know, maybe in my 20s and 30s, but I I grew up on hip-hop. And there's a very uh, well-known group called Tribe Called Quest. And Tribe Called Quest is unique in hip-hop because they are one of the most successful and one of the first groups to marry jazz and hip-hop. So when they um, came out, like it, it was the best of both worlds for me. And so there is a song, uh, there's, there's actually an album called uh, Low End Theory uh, from Tribe Called Quest. And really that album is bass heavy. And it's about the low end, you know, really a lot of hip hop is about that. But this album in particular is about the low end and, and about the bass that, that's in it. And so it's kind of a play on that title and a nod to jazz and hip hop. And so it is, you know, kind of like the gravity or the, the glue that holds uh, jazz together and, and hip hop and, and a lot of other music. So it's, it's, it's like theories of the lowest end. So it, it's kind of exploring that you know, the bass that holds all of this music together. Yeah, the deep sounds. Yeah. 
You mentioned some iconic photos of Dizzy Gillespie and Miles Davis. You've captured some impressive artists on film yourself. In yes. fact, in, in 2017, your photos were prominently displayed as part of the Atlanta Jazz Festival's 40th anniversary. Who are some of the greats you've had the privilege of photographing? Yeah, so I have photographed Dizzy Gillespie, I've photographed Betty Carter. I've photographed Pharaoh Sanders. There's so many that uh, Nancy Wilson. I think Nancy Wilson's actually the first jazz artist that I ever photographed when I lived in New York. But there's been um, plenty of my heroes and sheroes that I've met. And I would say that, you know, at the top of the list, I, I think uh, where I couldn't, you know, kind of like contain my admiration is when I photographed Nina Simone because oh. I <laughs> worshipped her all of my life and my mom and, you know, my parents, you know, told me about her. So when I finally got to photograph her and then meet, sit down and talk with her and engage with her, like it was, it was like one of, one of those moments in, in life where I will share with my grandchildren that, that I got to, you know, not, not only photograph Nina Simone, but um, to meet her backstage and, you know, her sign my book and, it was really uh, quite, quite amazing. You were connecting with American history. Yeah, yeah. And a legendary artist. Yes. Camille, how will Michael's artwork be available to attendees? Well, we're going to make a poster. There'll also be note cards. It'll be on one of the official T-shirts. And so people can come to the festival and they can purchase the items there. Now, the festival is outdoors in Piedmont Park. What safety precautions or COVID guidelines are in place? Well, since it is outdoors, and since the mayor's mandate um, reflects mask mandatory wear inside, where we have inside facilities, we have a VIP area and the VIPs will be mandated to wear masks. The food vendors who are gonna be in enclosed areas will be mandated to wear masks. We will have hand sanitizer stations available all over the festival footprint. And we will ask our patrons to consider wearing masks. Uh, for the benefit of, of everyone. We can't mandate it, but we will ask them as a courtesy to do that. Camille Russell Love, the executive director of the Mayor's Office of Cultural Affairs, and Michael Reese, the visual artist behind the Atlanta Jazz Festival's official artwork, Theories of the Lowest End. The festival is Sunday, September 5th, through Monday the 6th in Piedmont Park. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, a conversation about the photography of food with Batman. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. 
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Alan Bat is a renowned photographer who goes by the name Batman. He has been photographing food for decades, published 30 books, and worked with over 700 chefs. His latest book is Tokes in Black, a celebration of black chefs, which he says is the highlight of his career. He joins us now via Zoom. Batman, welcome to City Lights. Well, thank you, Lois. I'm really happy to be here. And I got to tell you, you made me sound really important. You are very important and impressive. And this book is fantastic. During our reckoning with racial injustice, we're hearing repeated calls for inclusivity and amplifying black voices. Where does Tokes in Black fit into the conversation? I started a little over two years ago when I had the idea and problems in the in this country were not quite as exaggerated as they are now. And it was just, I thought it was something really good to do because like some of the chefs in the book said, gee, I didn't know the, where are all the black chefs? And I didn't know there were so many and that kind of thing. So when I first started, I, I asked the first 10 chefs to do two dishes because I didn't think I'd have enough to fill up a book. And this book seems to be very pertinent and very timely. In, in the book, we have stories about when they were growing up, what they wanted to be when they grew up. Some wanted to be astronauts and musicians. And it just fits in because we're trying to even the color scheme in this country and not be one particular color. So uh, it's bringing a lot of attention to the black chefs who are absolutely wonderful. The book is not all, all uh, Southern cooking. In fact, it's very little, but we have a lot of soul in the book. And it's to show the diversity of these chefs. Alan, what determined the number of chefs you included? I got to 100 and I said, okay, that's enough because if you put too many in one book, the book is just too heavy and too expensive. There were a lot of chefs that I would have liked to put in that I found out after because everything was word of mouth. So I knew three chefs in New York and I said, who do you know? And then who do they know and who do they know? So it, it was just because I've done so many books, 100 chefs, and it was also a photo of the dish, a story and a recipe, which is usually two pages, and that was going to be 400 pages already. So I had to stop. Well, let's talk about that layout of the book. Two photos of the chef and their story appear on the left page. The food is on the right. Which came first, the portrait of the chef 
Or the food depicted. It was the food. This is the first time I've ever done stories about the chefs and pictures of the chefs. It would have been out a year ago. And then I, I got close to, you know, getting the book finished. I said, you know what, we should, I have to do something different. There's a lot of cookbooks around. I've done a lot of cookbooks and I wanted this to be a little more interesting. So it took a while. It took like four months to get their stories. That was the hardest part. And so it made the whole difference. It's not just a cookbook now. It's something that I've been told will be around for a long time. And it's a part of the, the movement that's going on now. And I've heard that from several people. Tell us about the title. Toque is a chef hat in French. And most of the time, I, I seem to me, when a, a creative person, stuff just pops up in your head. And a lot of times in the middle of the night. And it just said, oh, Toke's in black. It just fit. I appreciated the story of Melba Wilson in Toke's in black. Her rise to success is quite impressive, having cooked at the famous Sylvia's restaurant in Harlem, her own restaurant backed by Robert De Niro. Melba Wilson credits her grandmother as a tremendous influence, saying her grandmother mixed love with every other ingredient that went into her down-home country cooking. Do you think that the chefs celebrated in your book are as intent on preserving heritage and tradition as they are in achieving recognition as sophisticated gourmet chefs? The history is not as important as their personal history. The history of the food is important, but they wanted it to diverse. And they've been working in a lot of really high-end restaurants. And they've, uh, most of them have gone to culinary school. I mean, they would like the recognition. Uh, that's the hardest thing to get because their food is exceptional. But I don't think it's putting the heritage in it. There are some that only cook food from their ancestors and stuff. Yeah, but I guess maybe a better way of putting it is honoring their families. Because that is a recurring theme throughout the book was a love of cooking learned with a parent or a grandparent. Mostly grandparents. That, that's the big common denominator in the book. It's just the nature of the, you know, the Southern history. Another outstanding story was that of the Jamaican-born Nigel Spence. It was heartbreaking to read that when he moved from Kingston to New York, kids at the Bronx Junior High were brutal in their ridicule of him, especially the way he spoke. And his is a story of food as refuge from a painful childhood. I think that the photo of Nigel Spence's Roasted Red Snapper may be my favorite in the entire book. It's such a vivid still life, and the colors are so vibrant. Would you talk about that photo? Uh, you'd swear that you were in Jamaica, first of all. I think one of the reasons you might like this the most is because it looks authentic. It wasn't like everything is in exactly the perfect spot or the vegetables are perfect which is what I generally like to shoot. You know, there's a, a lot of chefs who want to outdo the next person as far as visual. And sometimes it's over the top and it looks like you don't want to eat. It looks like you want to hang it on your wall. 
But uh, Nigel's looks like you want to eat it. It looks absolutely delicious. I guess that's his artistic eye as well. I've read that a photo shoot of food is very labor intensive. Would you tell us how you set up and photograph food? Uh, I can, you might be disappointed when I tell you my story. <laughs> uh, I work with the chef, I don't work with stylists. So everything you see is real and, and it's from the chef's design. I, I do very rarely do I ever ask them to do differently because, because it's them. What does a food stylist do? You don't use them, but how does the final thing we see in a magazine or a book, what has the stylist done to uh, achieve that? They have tweezers, they have some sprays, they work with this thing. I don't even like working with stylists. I think I've only worked twice in the 20 years I've been doing this. I, I feel like the chef does a really good job. Some of them are better than others, um, but I'll just tweak it a little so that it looks balanced. But I like taking what the chef does and not what the stylist wants to do with it. So when you look in the magazines, you mean this stuff is perfect. Quarter pound of a cheese never looked better. So that's what a stylist does. They just make it look really clean and nice and all that. My pictures, I think, are lovely just the way they are. Well, what does a stylist use? I mean, I understand what fashion stylists do, but how do you dress up food? Well, you know what? If Like if you have tomatoes, they'll probably have extra tomatoes and they'll cut them so that the slices are perfect, so that the fried stuff is perfect. Uh, ice cream, you know, they used to use all kinds of stuff. There was only one time in 20 years that I, somebody used, I think it was Crisco or something. I'm also the fastest shooter in the business, first of all, because I'm not experienced. I'm not, I'm not knowledgeable, so I don't think about all the little details maybe you're supposed to. And with ice cream, I've always shot it before it melted. And then there's times where we let it melt a little, so it looks like you really want to eat it. <laughs> and they'll, they'll have a lot of vegetables or lettuce. They'll get ones with the leaves or, you know, curved just right, you know. Uh, that kind of thing. But that's not your style. No, no. And I work in the restaurant. I don't do any studio shooting anymore. Although I never did. When I had a studio, I never did food. I was doing products and stuff. Uh, but now I go to the chefs and um, I can tell you a real quick story about this. I don't know whether you can ask me. Uh, with this uh, Tokes in Black, I did 77 chefs in 46 cities in 50 days. That was pretty intensive. Yeah, and, and it, was, it was wonderful. And because I have no equipment, I just had a carry-on bag. I had a, a backpack with my camera equipment. And then I had a carry-on bag with my clothes for seven days. So I carried that all in a car, uh, carry-on bag, and that's, that's the way I traveled. And it was good. And it was exciting. And it was crazy. It, it sounds like it, but what, what fun. Did you get to eat the food you photographed? Of course. Oh, I envy that. Well, you know what? I don't know if I appreciate it as much as you would. So next time you should come with me. Oh, that would be fun. Well, I have had the pleasure of dining more than once at Red Rooster, the restaurant in Harlem owned by the famous chef Marcus Samuelson, charismatic guy, just marvelous. And he wrote the foreword to Tokes in Black. Yes, he did. And he sent me a wonderful email thanking me for doing this book and giving me Black Chefs a platform to work off of. Oh, he is a mensch. And he mentioned six women 
including Sylvia Woods, Edna Lewis, and Leah Chase. As he writes, we stand on the shoulders of black women who wrote the first and second chapters of American food and black American cooking. Alan, what did you learn from your involvement in this project? I learned how important the slaves were in forming the American cuisine with all the things, all the, the food that they brought from Africa that, you know, people today think it, you know, grows upstate New York, uh, which it does now. And I didn't realize how important it was to the culture of American cuisine. Food photographer Alan Batt. His latest book is Tokes in Black, and you can learn more about it on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. Up next, the women behind the She ATL Summer Theater Festival. You are tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. She ATL is a summer theater festival promoting work by female playwrights and empowering them to self-produce. The festival began six years ago in New York and since expanded to L.A. and last year to Atlanta. She ATL's executive producers Erica Miranda and Caitlin Hargraves recently spoke with City Light senior producer Kim Drogues. They were joined by Grace Aki, whose new show, To Free a Mockingbird, will be featured at this year's festival. Erica Miranda began with the history of the festival. We are the sister festival of She NYC and She LA, which have been around for a few more years than, than we have. The work is always the same, though, between the three of us, and it's to do that, elevate new writers, young writers, old writers, a multitude of writers by providing basic production needs. So quite technically, we provide a space. Sometimes we provide um, props and set decoration. We provide lighting and tools. And because of some really generous donors for the past two years, we've, we've been able to provide a small stipend for them. So essentially what we're trying to do is we're trying to give them the opportunity to have their voice heard in play form on an actual stage with an actual audience. And I feel maybe it's important to speak a little bit to the history. This is Caitlin, by the way. She NYC was the parent festival and that started six years ago out of just the overwhelmingly disparaging numbers of the um, disproportionate amount of plays that were being produced on Broadway that were written and produced by male identifying artists versus female identifying or non-binary artists. That's sort of the seed that was planted by She NYC. And about two years after that, She LA took up the torch and um, started you know, working their magic out on the West Coast. And Erica and I were approached by the She NYC team and um, you know, thought that 
Atlanta would make a really good home for this as well with all the amazing artists we've got. So, I mean, overall, our mission is to prove that there's no reason for male artists to have the overwhelming majority of produced work. Yeah, no doubt. Did either of you have direct involvement with the NYC project? Uh, Not until this year, actually. I had worked with um, one of their board members in Another Life in Chicago, and they just kind of looped us in. But this past year, because of the pandemic last year, we were all digital. I was able to go into New York this year and kind of lend some hands and learn from the way that they are doing their festival there, which was great. It was awesome. Which I will say, that's another part of our festival that I think kind of makes it really special. Each festival provides a mentor to each of the shows and depending on the playwright. Yeah, it's super awesome. And what's great about it is that it's also versatile in how that tool gets used. Each playwright has different needs and maybe are focusing on different things, whether it's rewrites or if it's production oriented, but that mentor, we hope, Caitlin and I work together to try to find the perfect mentor for that specific show so Mm -hmm. that those skill sets kind of come together and in a beautiful collaboration. <laughs> Excellent. Well, what is the selection process like? How did you guys choose? Ooh. Oh, it's so tough. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> oh, goodness. It's hard. It's hard. You know, we, we sort of start putting the word out for submissions um, in the fall. And then Erica and I go deep into reading tons and tons of plays. I think our first year we had over 30 submissions and this year was right about the same number or you know within that ballpark so we have a a difficult selection process that involves months of reading and reading and rereading and rereading yeah and we we ask you know ourselves like our our central questions like very fundamentally what is this play about but then also what is it really about you know how is it serving our community um, and the world at large. And then we also have some resources that we pull in. Like we will tag team with the New York team if they have plays that they want us to read or if, if we want their eyes on some of the ones that we're thinking about. In the first year, we had an incredible team of Atlanta artists chip in to be our readers. To be completely honest, we weren't expecting to have so many plays to read through, so we had to call in for help. <laughs> but again, I mean, Caitlin and I are such fans of not creating in a vacuum that we try to pull in their community as, as much as we can. That's great. And not to make things too weird on Grace, but can you talk a little bit about your decision to include Grace's production? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, we, we got a lot of really stunning plays and, and a lot that really um, spoke to our community and as, as far as Atlanta goes. So we were looking for very unique voices. And as you'll hear in just a moment here, Grace's is, is just about as unique as they come and, and as is her experience. And one thing we were really thinking about this year um, coming through a pandemic is um, these stories of, of experiences and hope. And that's something that for me, just really stuck out of Grace's beautiful piece. So Grace, let's talk about your piece to free a mockingbird. Oh, sure. Uh, First of all, thanks, guys. Uh, (laughs) I I also want to just quickly say that, like, the reason I even knew about She ATL was because of She NYC. 
initially. Like I was attending Women's Day on Broadway. Hillary Clinton was speaking. It was a wild time. And like, it was such an informative event for, cause it's a free event that happens every single year. Thanks to, I think it's Disney theatricals. And they kind of show all of these incredible nonprofits, especially and resources for women like Maestra Org. Um, she NYC was one of them. And so I kind of like wrote it down as, as a place like, okay, cool. I think I could submit to something like that. And then funnily enough, I think a couple of years ago, I used a small monologue from my play to audition for she NYC. And then the, the panel of people, I mean, I did not get picked for something and I'm not holding a grudge, but <laughs> at the end of my monologue, they said, sorry, what is that from? And I was like, oh, it's the thing I wrote. Okay. Bye. <laughs> and so anyways, I, I, I kept, you know, she NYC in my like catalog of, of social that I followed. And then just like another, you know, women run resource, right. As a playwright. And then I found myself displaced back in, in one of the two places that I call home, which is between New York and uh, Dalton, Georgia, which is where I'm from during the pandemic. And then I saw that she ATL was hosting um, play submissions and I went, oh, yeah, I'm going to do it. I love that organization. I've been following them. Um, and so I was so honored to be selected, like truly, truly, truly. I've been like following this group for years. And so knowing that they were ushering in new artists, like between like Burnett, Roz and I, like, we are so thankful and appreciative of all the work that they've been doing. So I just want to set that up to start. Um, I can't stop raving about it. I tell everybody, I'm like, are you in New York? Cause you got to go see the shows. If you're in Atlanta, you got to see the shows, wear a mask. And um, <laughs> like, please, but yeah, so, so my play specifically has been something that I've been working on for about like two years now on and off with some like workshops and, and different environments. And it's, I try to tell people that they're attending a stand-up show in the sense of like, it's not. And, um, that's, that's kind of where I like to leave it because I don't want anyone to have an expectation because I think when you say that it's a one man play, they expect 700 Sundays by Billy Crystal. And that's really sweet. And I love mm. that for them. And I love that play too, but, um, it can be so much more. And I think that the more we expand our horizons of what storytelling and solo show work is, which is especially why I love the mentorship program that we've been doing with SheATL because I've gotten to talk to Jordan, who they so expertly set me up with, love her work so far. Like she's been incredibly resourceful for me. This is another wave in, in the exploration of this specific piece. And I'm so excited to present it in Atlanta again, where I feel like a lot of the heart of the show really resides. Most of the show takes place in Atlanta. So <laughs> I feel like it's it's only fitting that I get to do it where, where all of it lays. That worked out really well. Yeah. So how close does it relate to your own life? Oh, it's unfortunately very close. Um, <laughs> you know, like I, I will, I will say this. I didn't know how much of me could be in the piece when I started working on it with my director. I was working with at the time, Kate Robards, who's amazing. She does a lot of the work with like the Barrow group and Seth Barish and all that great stuff. And, um, I kept writing the show mainly about my family because I think that's part of us, right? Like the, one of my taglines is like, it's generational trauma. It's funny, right? And I kept leaving myself, like my own stories out of it. And then um, my director looked at me and she's like, what are you afraid of? And I said, I'm afraid nobody will believe me. And that question informed the rest of the development of the piece and, and informs the rest of the work that I do too. Cause I have a storytelling podcast that I utilize called Tell Me on a Sunday. And, you know, we're always asking ourselves as artists, what are we afraid of? And when we acknowledge whatever that is, we have to decide whether we want to indulge it or, you know, keep backing away. And uh, 
I felt very comfortable leaning more into it, especially as this production progresses. Well, when you use words like generational trauma, that's big, (laughs) right? That's big. It's pretty heavy. It's pretty heavy. (laughs) Do you think putting that up front helps your audience get ready to relate to the play? I like to fool them. Uh, (laughs) Yes, because I think that if you tell people, you know, we we talked about this week um, in our like ever long email thread (laughs) of what are our trigger warnings. And um, I think that letting people know that that can be a part of this story helps them go, okay, I'm there. I've, I've experienced it, or it's something that they're really unfamiliar with. And I think that the more we use these heavy, and I don't even want to say like emotional buzzwords, but the more we acknowledge the right definition of these things, the easier it will be to talk about. And that's what I hope we do with any storytelling and especially the show in general. Oh, 100%. I mean, if you don't say it out loud, it never gets discussed and it never gets easier. Right. For sure. So can you speak a little to the title that you chose for it and why you decided to play off of the famous Harper Lee novel? I would, but I would like for you to see it to find out. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, to be frank, something that's not even in the show at all, but I'll just like tell you is that um, a big part of my childhood was reading Harper Lee's famous book. I mean, I I loved To Kill Mockingbirds so much. In fact, one of my formative childhood memories is I was 10 years old and the local Dalton Little Theater was putting on a production of To Kill a Mockingbird, the the stage play version, not the one that Aaron Sorkin wrote, which is a travesty. And um, (laughs) No, no strong opinions whatsoever. No strong opinions. But like, if you're a man from New York, you're not allowed to like rip the work from Harper Lee's grave. And so I was, um, I was, I was auditioning for this play and I was like, I want to be a real actor. And then the, the role of the narrator was supposed to be adult Jean Louise, adult scout. And my mom was with me doing the reading and they were like, can you just like come up on stage, maybe read it with her. And of course she looks exactly like me. She's my mom. And she was like, she has such stage fright. She doesn't do that. And they asked her to be in the show with me as me as young scout and then her as adult Jean Louise. And she would absolutely hyperventilate, throw up before the show every single night. And then she looked at me dead in the eyes one night and she was like, Grace, this is how much I love you. I never have to tell you I love you ever again because this is it. This is the proof. And that's why, you know, I love my mother. Margaret's amazing. And um, so To Kill a Mockingbird has been such a big part of my life that I feel like you'll see how it weaves throughout the story, but especially at the end. Oh, that's so cool. I look forward to it. So you mentioned your mom. I know she's obviously very familiar with your work, but once again, when you speak of generational trauma, how is the rest of your family with this production? Are they all familiar? and and cool with it? Well, the good news is that most people are dead. I don't (laughs) have to really run it by everybody, to be frank. Uh, But the rest of the people, I didn't tell my family what the show was about at all. They thought they were coming to see one of my stand-up shows, which was hilarious. Caitlin and Erica, can you imagine? And my mom pulled a muscle in her neck the first time she ever watched it. From laughing or crying or horror? Just like sheer, sheer shock, like excitement, but also like I, you could have told me. And I was like, but if I told you, uh, what would have changed? You would have also pulled a muscle (laughs) but otherwise I think that they're they're proud of me and and I think it's it's helped a generation of especially my my family is Asian American and a lot of them bury a lot of their generational trauma it goes unacknowledged and undiscussed pretty much so I think this has been a really great way to acknowledge some of it that's I guess I guess that's how I can put that yeah yeah That makes sense. And everyone earlier spoke to the mentor system and you mentioned your mentor, Jordan. Can you talk a little about what that relationship was like? 
Yeah, I've never gotten to work with a dramaturg. I've never, I've never had that opportunity. Also, because there's a huge paywall involved with with any artist, right? And I've always, you know, subscribed to the idea that like if if I can't pay an artist, I can't utilize them. It just it just can't happen. And so like the idea that GATL could provide that for me, knowing that like we were uh, getting to utilize any resource that we possibly could. You know, I got to contact Jordan and and we discussed uh, some of the ramifications of certain parts of the show. Like I, I was very clear early on that I talk about Gone with the Wind, which I think is really formative to a lot of like Southern culture. But also when I discuss it, I never want to be disrespectful or disregard the racial ramifications of that piece. And so when I talk about it, I wanted to make sure that I was getting a lot of input from someone, especially a woman of color on this particular project to be like, hey, how do I tackle this without, with also acknowledging the fact that I'm not like in favor of the Confederacy. Like, <laughs> I just, I wanna be really clear about that. And so Jordan was like, look, you know, we can, we can work however many ways. And I always thought, oh, it has to be an official thing. I have to send in a script and then they have notes and then go back and forth. And Jordan was like, you can send me voice memos if you want. And I was like, oh, cool, we can work like that. So it's just been a really wonderful collaborative process. And I, again, I'm so honored by the fact that this has been top to bottom, a really welcoming and healthy environment to work in as an artist. Yeah, what an amazing treat slash privilege to be able to have yeah. that opportunity. That's fantastic. Caitlin, can you speak a little to the other plays that'll be going on in the festival? Oh, absolutely. It'd be my pleasure. This year, we've got three shows total. So there's Graces to free a mockingbird. And then we also have another one person show, which is by an amazing non-binary playwright, Roz Sullivan Lovett. And the title of that show is, And God Forbid It Should Be So. It's um, a short exorcism of gendered narratives featuring a spirited maiden, a bloodthirsty bridegroom, and roughly six variations of the 17th century fairy tale, Bluebeard's Wife. So it's a really awesome, wild time. It's actually by an Emory alumni. So Roz has, has sort of been back and forth between the two coasts. They are originally from Portland and have sort of gone back and forth since graduating from Emory. And um, they're really excited to bring this show uh, to a live audience. And then our other show is Four Wives and a Will by Burnett Sherman. <laughs> it's hilarious. Okay, I love Burnett's tagline for this one. A slice of 227 topped with a scoop of golden girls in the 2020s, complete with weed, woke folks, and wisecracks, and well, a serious message. <laughs> Sold. So yeah, so those are those are our three pieces this festival, and we are really excited. We've got a lot of incredibly diverse voices and experiences coming into this festival this year, and I think each one of them is bringing so much to the Atlanta community. I just, I can't say that enough, these experiences are Atlanta experiences and they are also so incredibly unique and individual. So I think it speaks to the the depth and breadth that our awesome community has here. That's wonderful. And I know last year was the inaugural year and I was wondering if from the get-go, I'm not sure how far in advance you started planning, but was it always supposed to be virtual last year or was that a pivot on y'all's behalf? No, that was a pivot. 
we, we held on as long as we could, but we knew we had to start thinking about it when the lockdown happened in, in March. So yeah, this will be our first time in a theater at the Windmill Arts Center. Though we are keeping that digital portion available to some of our audience members because so many people from so many different places were able to tune in last year that we want to keep that opportunity and be respectful of those who, you know, might not be able to, to come out to see the show live. Each of the performances, there's be one performance per show and each of those will be uh, recorded by a videographer and then put together for our digital festival the first week of September. Oh, that's great. So it is the actual performance. We'll just get to see it at a later date if we're not able to make it in person. Exactly. That's great. One of the most amazing things that did come out of the whirlwind of putting a theater festival to a digital platform last year was, was just the amazing ability to send it out to so many different audiences. Erica has family in Mexico. I have family in Chile. And being able to share our work that has previously been limited to, you know, in person and live, it's what we love about the theater. But to be able to share that across the globe was really incredible. And we wanted to be able to do that again this year. That's great. We hear that lately over and over again from creatives that as upsetting as it's been to not be able to gather in person, that is a silver lining that the reach has changed. And it's gone from hyper local to completely international overnight, which is a beautiful thing for you to be able to share your art that way. It is. Absolutely. So if someone is ready to go out to a theater, can you help them feel really good about the COVID safety protocols? What do you guys got going on? Yeah, absolutely. We are uh, taking our cues from the New York Festival and what's happening on Broadway, and we are requiring all of our audience members to show proof of vaccination upon entering the theater. There will be someone there physically asking to see it. And then we are asking that everyone keep their masks on throughout the entire time that they're in the building and throughout the performance. If they have to step away to drink water or anything, we ask they do so outside the premise and you know put their mask back on once that is finished. Um, and we are at a limited capacity, so there will be some space and yeah, a deep breath. <laughs> yeah, a deep breath, no doubt. We've also, um, our shows are all limited to 90 minutes max with most of them coming in well under that. So it won't be too long with a mask on your face. So um, we're fortunate that our, our timeline isn't, isn't too stressed. You're not going to be sitting in a theater for three hours with a mask on your face. Yeah, that is not a huge ask of people. When you say proof of vaccination, is a picture on your cell phone adequate? Or do you want to see people's solid cards? A picture is perfect. Grace, is there anything that you, you want to share? Well, I can just like throw this in. The fact that I've been so fortunate to get to see a couple of shows recently, off-Broadway, on-Broadway, what have you, like where we were masked the entire time and we showed proof of vaccination and it was a really safe and easy process. And besides that, I've been experiencing a lot of virtual theater, which at first I was like, I don't know if this is going to ruin in-person theater and this is all this stuff, right? But then I realized the accessibility of it all is so important to sharing the arts. And so beyond the fact that like, yes, we can we can send it to everybody across the country, across, across the globe, like that's incredible. But I also have to keep in mind the people that may not be able to be, if they're immunocompromised or what have you, or they're just able to be in a home and maybe we don't even have like, you know, a handicap ramp or anything like that. Like we are getting to share our art thanks to these amazing people 
through technology. And so that's, I just want to throw that out there to say like, this is going to be an amazing experience for anyone that's able to physically come or stay inside their home, no matter what they're going to get art. And that's the important thing. Grace Aki, Erica Miranda, and Caitlin Hargrave speaking with City Light senior producer Kim Droves. The SheATL Festival begins this Wednesday, August 25th. There will be live, in-person performances as well as digital recordings. More information will appear on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Honoré Fanon Jeffers and her epic novel, The Love Songs of W.E.B. Du Bois. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There, you will find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would absolutely love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WAB yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wab.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.